and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. Today we continue our coverage of the uprisings in the United States. The street occupations, riots and protests against racist policing and the murder of George Floyd continue into their second week. But as we go to air, the curfews are lifting and the tide of public opinion is shifting. More and more parts of civil society are calling for the abolition of the Minneapolis Police Department. I caught up with Robin Wansley Wallabar once again for an update, and she starts this discussion by introducing herself. My name is Robin Wansley Wallabar. Um, I'm a current resident, and I honestly will say I'm originally from Chicago, but Um, considering the uprising that has taken place in Minneapolis, I I feel comfortable now uh, claiming this is my home. So I would say (laughs) Minneapolis is my current home right now. Um, And the organization that I've been doing, organizing around at least two um, in in regards to the George Floyd um, inspired uprising has been with the Twin Cities uh, Democratic Socialists of America organization or other otherwise known as DSA. It's so surreal that things kicked off now two weeks ago. Um, And while we're not where we were, you know, two weeks ago in terms of our city, like literally burning down, we're in such, like the unraveling of a system that so many generations have fought many decades for, or, it has literally transpired in the span of 14 days. And it's just a lot of daily developments, new developments and shifting terrain. It's just, it's a lot to take in and a lot to try to be intentionally responsive to. Um, But I also just feel blessed to be part of a historical moment, um, to witness a historical moment. Um, I don't think anyone, including myself, imagine seeing uh, such an international attack on, like, not only the police force, but, like, actually making abolition happen. Uh, No one anticipated in 14 days (laughs) you could do that. So while it's tiring work, it's, it's, it's so inspirational at the same time. Well, why don't we talk about what has happened um, between now and when we last spoke to you? Um, Because Mm -hmm. in that amount of time, we had the curfews uh, from what we're looking at in the international media. It looks like those curfews are slowly lifting. There have been major Mm -hmm. reforms proposed uh, in relation to the police department where you are. Talk us through some of that. Yeah, so I think the last time we connected, yeah, the the curfew was lifted. Um, I think we we, and I will largely attribute that to the successful and um, immediate organizing that a lot of neighborhood um, groups and residents led in creating the community defense committees to really be responsive uh, towards a need for protection within their communities is something that the police and fire department um, was not showing up for. So I I largely attribute that not because we brought in the National Guards or because of the police or because outside agitators just 
stop looting and setting fires. I would say it's because we showed up in a massive force across our cities um, and really took up um, the effort to protect our communities. Um, so that has been such a major development um, that still is, is happening till this day in North Minneapolis. They're still having um, or still being confronted by uh, white supremacist vigilantes who are coming in and trying to set fires and are shooting. Um, so we've had civil rights groups and local residents, particularly black residents in that community who are still diligently um, doing nightly patrols um, and things of that nature. Um, so our community defense um, committees are still, still growing. Um, still are in existence and people are trying to wrestle again politically like is this something that can be used as a platform for uh, abolition in terms of like a transitional structure that could hopefully replace our reliance on like police whereas there are folks who are typically white homeowners in those spaces who are thinking that I need this to protect my private property or it gives me even more um, authority to bring more police into my community under the, the, the skies of, you know, community protection. So we've had those developments um, take place. We've had a major uh, successful momentum take place around uh, the divestment uh, demand. And to clarify, uh, divestments from the Minneapolis, Minneapolis Police Department. Um, we've had our local uh, Minneapolis, oh, Jesus, it's even so hard to talk right now. We've had our uh, school district uh, vote to sever its contract with the Minneapolis police. Uh, we've had one of our largest museums also vote to do the same. We had our uh, largest state uh, university, public university, also cut ties with uh, the Minneapolis police department. Um, we've had corporate Law firms also uh, follow suit and a host of other um, organizations that have agreed to uh, basically not direct any more funds or uh, money towards our police department, which has been amazing. Um, as of today, um, the Minneapolis uh, City Council also pledged uh, that within a year they will be looking to dismantle and disband our uh, Minneapolis Police Department. Um, that's something that even in social media, while we should celebrate because literally a year ago, uh, we had a Black Lives Matter group called Reclaim the Block um, present that same proposal to these folks. And they down the line said, except with the exception of two, voted no on that proposal in terms of dismantling or not even dismantling at that point to take away a small fraction of their funding um so it's 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 again surreal to think in just a year later we have a majority city council uh that's saying yes we're rallying around a a, a clear and explicit uh abolition a proposal, um, yet no ordinance has been proposed with this pledge um, and something that has left these groups on the ground. Um, we sh while we should celebrate this moment, we should also be very clear that now we've given uh, city council a year 
to honor this pledge, which in that time span, we should expect counter uh, actions from the police. We should expect uh, reactionary uh, counter actions from working class black and brown folks who do still see uh, the police force as a safety net. Um, and in, in that as a contradiction, like they know that, that this force doesn't protect their communities, but because there hasn't been an alternative infrastructure of care and safety established in their communities, um, it comes off as, so you just want chaos, you want anarchy to exist in our community. So we should expect a lot of uh, counter movements uh, to arise. And I think city council knows this, uh, the, the political folks knows this. Um, and so they could provide cover uh, when those groups do show up in strength in numbers, and this is in the case that, you know, the left and the, the Black Lives Matter groups, if we don't do our work of bringing working class folks, especially working class black and brown folks alone, into building our alternative um, um, towards abolition, um, or as we're working towards abolition, if we don't do that work, then those counterforces are very well positioned um, to get our city council to pass reductionist reforms or to do to step away from that demand entirely um so we and i think a lot of groups that have made these victories possible under the divestment campaign like we're even wrestling with that um again in working uh for the statewide teachers union um we we won uh we got the minneapolis uh, school board to divest from the minneapolis police and a lot of uh, black and brown folks in those communities who did rely on police as a safety um, network in their schools are saying then, what are we left with? And now we're having to wrestle with, you know, which is what we should have been doing all along. How do we organize and, and start to build trust with our communities, um, especially those who have children in our schools, our public schools, to start thinking, what is an alternative model of safety in our schools and for the police officers and to take away the strength of like it's only a few bad apples um in the bucket like we have to have shifts that yes if there were individual police officers in your schools that were doing great work were building relationships wasn't harming physically mentally um students then we need to find another role for those people because clearly they know how to create relationships they know how to make people feel safe but they don't need to do so with this attachment of a problem problematic institution a, a racist inherently racist institution we shouldn't have to maintain that attachment for these individuals uh, to be able to do great work in our schools and have those relationships so that's kind of where we're at right now if like we're getting We've had so many victories of of basically bankrupt, <laughs> bankrupting and stripping uh, the cash flow away from our police department, but now we're having to wrestle with, with then what are we going to replace it with? And I think that's the space where a lot of groups are at, DSA is at, um, and we got a lot of work to do um, in the months and years forward to protect the wins that we just gained over the span of the 14 days and to stretch it beyond um just you know additional minor reforms we got some work to do of laying down and working with our communities to build solid infrastructures of care and protection and wellness so that people can start to to relinquish this attachment 
from the police and so, the institution itself. So how is that uh, reflected in the rest of the country? Because one of the things that was so remarkable um, about the uh, the response, the collective community response to the murder of George Floyd is that the entire country erupted. Uh, it is yep. the same pattern of divestment from police departments being replicated elsewhere. And then while you're answering that, if you could also comment on what is happening in Washington, so um, is specifically in relation to Trump's rhetoric and the impact that is having as well. I think a really good example of why I'm skeptical of our own city council folks about this year long grace period that's been given to them to dismantle the police or even defund the police. Uh, just a couple of days ago, Los Angeles, their city council voted to strip $145 million away from their police department. Took one day. And we're talking about a year to investigate how and if we should dismantle our police department right now. So it's been inspiring to think, I mean, it's been inspiring to watch other cities, you know, set precedences uh, with how defunding can look um, at a city level, at a municipal level. Um, and, and then to watch where, you know, we're, we're ground zero for all of this and we're basically behind a lot of other, other cities who are taking the next steps. Um, so it's been amazing to see again, other cities be inspired to start, um, deeply detaching away and defunding or stripping away funding from uh, police institutions that, uh, I mean, similar to us, we're heavily entrenched in. Um, our entire lives and our communities are deeply embedded within uh, the institutions of policing. Um, so I was really, really um, inspired to see Los Angeles, Los Angeles set that as um, uh, a tone or set that as a president um, that hopefully we could follow soon. Um, in terms of the question around Washington, D.C., um, in regards to Trump's uh, commentary, again, I think we are in this political space, uh, not just locally, but this has become such an international movement, and it's become independent. Um, which is something that I think we should really, really highlight. These mass actions that's happening on the ground are independent. It's not coming from our, you know, corporate uh, democratic establishments. It's not controlled and centralized by any particular progressive groups. Um, it's literally being led by masses of black and brown youth and black and brown working class folks um, who are not buying into the rhetoric that our you know political leaders are are putting out there um even for trump's like working class white i mean white working class base we have protests like anti-police brutality uh protests that are um erupting in in rural predominantly white uh working class in poor areas um there was a action in nebraska um, that's been led by, you know, working class white folks living in rural areas like this, I think, symbolizes that 
masses of folks are now recognizing that this issue isn't just pertinent to uh, the lived and historical experiences of black and brown folks. I think they're making the connections themselves. And when I say this, um, predominantly white, middle-class and affluent, I, I mean, uh, middle-class and, and working-class uh, white folks are starting to understand that, you know, these systems don't protect us. Um, in the case of like, when I've I've done strikes in my community, I mean, a lot of working class white folks have tried to organize around labor, especially within teachers. Um, and they've had police come to their actions and shut it down and arrest them. Like they're starting to see how their lives are also entangled with the destructive aspects of policing, um, which gives such a diversity um, to this movement that we've never seen before. Um, so I think that that is very much scaring President Trump because he's having segments of of his own base who probably voted for him or who have exemplified support for him or who are now saying, no, maybe you sending in the military on on peaceful protesters is not the course, the, the way to go. In fact, <laughs> I'm going to organize some of my farmers and in our, our town and it raised that myself like that is something that this movement around police police uh brutality and anti-racism that's something that we haven't had before like the the buy-in from uh working class and poor white folks who often their own material interests aligns with black and uh, brown folks every step of the way and i think they're starting to recognize that the the political elite such as trump which is Trump, Trump benefits from your exploitation, from your poverty. I think they're starting to make those connections through this movement. So I'm glad that we have poor and working class white folks that are also kind of turning on, <laughs> on their own movements master, which is, which is Trump. So that's been beautiful. <laughs> Well, Robin, it sounds like some extraordinary work that activists there on the ground are um, achieving, are, are putting into this, and it looks like there is some serious system dismantling happening. And we know that these sorts of movements get co-opted all the time, and it really is incumbent on us to um, to keep forging ahead and not to be bought out by small gains because it's the system overall that we've got our eyes on. Um, sure. Where, I, I mean, you've, you've mentioned a few things in terms of where to. So where to is what to build in place of um, dismantling the police department. Um, but are there any uh, closing remarks at this point in the struggle? Of course, we'll check in in a couple of weeks again to see where mm -hmm. things are at. But for now, any closing comments? No, I think that's where we're at. That's how we're going to win over people towards a new uh, vision of not just a society without policing, but a society without capitalism, essentially, because it is policing that is such a crucial part of upholding the system of capitalism. And if we could get rid of that, then what that means for the big corporations of our systems, that means we don't need you. We could care for ourselves if we have tons of models about cooperatives um, on every level in Minneapolis. We have folks who are collectively owning and um, organizing housing. They are collectively 
owning and building um, grocery stores and health clinics um, through cooperative models, ones that's not based off of privatization or profit. Um, and if we can take out kind of the, the foundational piece of that and build confidence amongst working class folks that we have more than enough capabilities to care for ourselves and to run our society. We don't need police to do that. We don't need Jeff Bezos to do that. Um, the, the sky is the limit right now. And I want everyone that's out in the streets to start thinking about, about that vision and how do we bring it to the ground in this moment and win people over for a future that is so bright and is so limitless right now. That was Robin Wansley Wallabar from the Democratic Socialists of America and based in Minneapolis, the epicenter of the current uprisings. And that's all we have time for on today's program of Accent of Women. This week's program was produced in my study at home with the incredible support of 3CR staff. I want to extend a very big thank you to them for ensuring that this program is still able to be heard right across the country. Accent of Women receives financial assistance from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at accentofwomen at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website. It's 3cr.org.au. Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. To close the show this week, an excerpt of Mariki Onus's speech at the Melbourne Black Lives Matter Solidarity Rally held on Saturday the 6th of June. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week. Today, warriors of the Aboriginal resistance called the Black Lives Rally protest in response to George Floyd's death. And I'm just going to read you out our media release. I can't breathe. The words of George Floyd as he was being murdered by the police in Minneapolis resonated painfully with Aboriginal people as so many of our own have died at the hands of racist police and prison guards here in so-called Australia. We stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters, our siblings fighting for justice and freedom in the United States of America and everywhere else in the world. In New South Wales, Dungaddy man David Dungo Jr. was held down by five prison guards, also yelled, I can't breathe, more than 12 times. Not one officer even faced disciplinary action for Dungay's murder, and his family is still waiting for justice. Racist policing practices are lethal. In 2017, Victoria, Yorta Yorta woman, Aunty Tanya Day, was subjected to racist policing practices and systemic racism which caused her death. In 2004, Queensland man Malarinji Dulmaji was likewise subject to racist policing practices and then murdered in custody. 
No one was brought to justice for his murder either. In 2019, both Joyce Clark in Western Australia and Kumanjai Walker in the Northern Territory were shot by police, shot to death by police. In New South Wales, in South Australia, Wayne Fallon Morrison, in Western Australia, Miss Duke, in Victoria, Veronica Nelson, all died in custody as a result of outright negligence on the part of police and corrections officers. In 2017, Tardy Chatfield's death in custody at the Tamworth Correctional Centre was ruled suicide despite conflicting evidence to the contrary. TJ Hickey, New South Wales. Ray Thomas, Jr., Victoria. Died while, died, both died while being pursued by rabid police against their own policing procedures of non-pursuit. Jesse Edwards was murdered on the streets in Swan Hill and his family was still fighting for justice. His racist killers have not been brought to justice. Had all these people been white, they would no doubt be still here. These deaths are among the latest in a long line of deaths in custody in the United States and Australia. Since the Royal Commission in 1991 into Aboriginal deaths in custody, 400, and it says 32 on my piece of paper, but I believe it's 435. As we speak about this, people are dying. No one has ever been convicted for the death of an Aboriginal person at the hands of Australia's racist police and correctional system. Not one person! Aboriginal people and other racialised people are subjected to police brutality and racist policing practices every single day and we've had enough. Australia and the US are both violent colonial racist regimes built on the genocide of Indigenous people and the theft of our lands. The police uphold these systems through the ongoing violent policing practices which sees both Indigenous and African Americans fill prisons and be murdered at the hands of these violent states. Black Lives Matter!